0: by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin our study in God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and we will go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for all that you've given us, all that you've provided for us, that you've given us your Word. We have the privilege, which a lot of believers, a lot of Christians in this world don't have, to have your Word, all 66 books translated faithfully in most cases, translated for us into English so that we can read it, we can understand it in many different translations, as the case may be to truly come to an understanding of what you have revealed to us. That is a great privilege. And that we take this and memorize it and meditate on it, that we may hide your word in our heart, and that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that we interpret your word not on the basis of what we think or how we feel or what the opinions of our culture are, but that we interpret your word as you have intended it, So that we may learn to think as you think, and that we may live life according to the standards that you have set forth for us in your word. So, Father, we pray now that as we come together, in order to uh, focus upon you and focus on your word, that you might challenge us. At times, that means that we are going to be rebuked and corrected, but that is to set our our feet on the path that you would have us to walk. And so, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about grief. Grief is one of the strongest of human emotions. Often it is associated with deep and profound sorrow And when we run across various hymns and songs or passages or events in Scripture that speak of grief, it touches us deeply. Some of you have gone through some profound seasons of grief. You have seen the loss of children, the loss of spouses, the loss of friends, and you have an understanding of what that means. In his recent documentary series on the history of country music, Ken Burns begins the history of it in terms of its uh, being recorded and played over over the radio uh, in the early part of the 20th century uh, with a hymn that was based on the grief over a death of a loved one. The title of that was a, was a hymn, will the circle be unbroken it was written as a christian hymn in 1907 i don't think it would quite pass muster for us but it was revised to some degree by a.p carter in the 1930s for the uh, carter family to sing as can the circle be unbroken. And it is a story of a young man who's standing at his kitchen window and he sees the hearse with the body of his mother in it be taken down the road by a horse drawn uh, wagon. And so as you listen to the words of that hymn, it touches people. This hymn, this song, Can the Circle Be Unbroken, has been recorded by untold Hundreds probably of country western artists and played all over and been modified, and it's also been used in television shows and recorded all over the world. And because it touches this deep chord of grief, grief is an emotion that also connects with a great deal of mental attitude sins. It is not that grief is wrong or a mental attitude sin, but people can respond to it differently, and, and the responses are sinful. It can lead to guilt and anger and bitterness, which is deeply, deeply visceral. Grieving God is mentioned in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, as we're going to see this morning. We also see passages in the Gospels that talk about our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross when he had deep sorrow and distress in the Garden of Gethsemane and handled it the way we should, and that is through prayer as he prayed to the Father to take this cup from me. So we can... Respond to grief that arises in our souls for a number of reasons, and I often mention that grief is something that God has uh, allowed for us. It wasn't part of the original plan in the Garden of Eden because we were not meant to die. Death, beginning with spiritual death, which was the instantaneous legal penalty that uh, that the uh, original... Uh, human beings, Adam and Eve, um, experienced the instant they disobeyed God. They died spiritually. They were separated from him. This is indicated by the fact that when God came to walk in the garden, they ran and hid. They knew that something was different. And that difference we refer to as spiritual death. And because they died spiritually, the long-term result of that was, was physical death. It is as if you were to go out to your garden, and you were to cut some flowers and bring them in, and they would make a beautiful bouquet, and they would still look fresh and alive, but they're dying. And over the next few days, they will wilt, and they will die. That is what happened when we were cut off from the source of life as a result of Adam's sin. And so we are all on the road to death because of spiritual death, but God sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and to pay that penalty for sin. He died spiritually on the cross when he was separated from the Father for those three hours. And then he died physically. He had to die physically because that showed in a visible, tangible way that death had occurred on the cross, but also because there needed to be a resurrection to new life and to demonstrate his victory over death, not only the legal penalty of sin, but also all of the consequences of sin. And so that is the picture that we have of of sin and its consequences. But because of sin, there's physical death and there's loss. There's loss of loved ones. And so every time we have a loss of a loved one and we grieve, that is something God has allowed in us to be a reminder that things aren't what they're supposed to be grief indicates that something is wrong and we all know that uh, almost intuitively we go through a time when someone close to us it can even be a pet and they die and we think this isn't right of course it's not right nothing is right since adam and eve disobeyed god there is nothing right about this world and there's nothing that any of us can ever do that will make it right all we can do is point people to the ultimate solution, which is what Christ did on the cross, which restores life to those who believe in him. But, of course, then they're like newborn babies, and they have to grow and, and mature. And they have to learn what it means to uh, live this new life that, that God has given to us. And that's what Paul is talking about in this section of, of um, Ephesians uh, where we find ourselves. In this section we see a number of different uh, commands, a different number of different prohibitions given to believers, because now that we are new creatures in Christ, we are expected to live differently. Living differently is not a requirement for salvation. It isn't a requirement to maintain our salvation. But what the Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2 is that that instant that we trusted in Christ, we were made alive together in Him. We were raised and seated together with Him in the heavenlies. That is our new position. A key phrase in there is that phrase, in Him. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. And it's interesting how you have this concept of a creation or creature uh, tied with the idea of our regeneration in the church age. Because what we've studied in Ephesians 4 is that that new creature is identified as a new man. The new man, that phrase is first used in Ephesians 2.15. That at the instant of our salvation, we are entered into the body of Christ, and after the cross, when Christ started the church, then the church is referred to as a new man that is composed of saved Jews and Gentiles who are together in this new entity that is called the new man it's called uh it's called a new building it is called a um a, a new temple and it's called a new body four things there in Ephesians chapter 4 the next time we see that phrase that that we've talked about many times in um in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, is, I mean, the next time we see that phrase is in Ephesians chapter 4, where he's talking about the fact that we have put off the old man and we have put on the new man. The way the verbs were translated in most English translations, as we've seen, is completely wrong. It's translated as if it's an imperative that you put off the old man and that you put on the new, but they are a past tense verb in the Greek. It's an aorist tense, and it should be translated, you have put off. When did you put off the old man? You put off the old man, who is everything we were in Adam at the instant that you trusted Christ. And at that time you put on the new man. And we entered into that new man, which is really that position in Christ and all that we have in Christ, and it is the church, the new, the new man, the new body, the new building, the new temple. And so now that we are identified with Christ, we are, as it were, using a sports analogy, we have changed teams. When we are born, we are born on Satan's team. We are in the domain of darkness and the, we are spiritually dead. We are in the realm of death. But when we trust in Christ, we're made alive together with him. And so we're transferred to the new man. And we put on a new team jersey, as it were, because we have a new identity. And we have a new contract, as it were. I'm not saying there's a new covenant with the church. I'm just using that as an analogy. Sports players shift teams, just like Justin Verlander just came back to the Astros. and he's got a different Contract than he had before, and he's got a different contract than he had when he was with the Astros before that. So it's that's the analogy. And on that contract, there's expectations of performance. For us as believers, there are expectations of our performance. And that's what we see as we start Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, that we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called, not to get salvation, not to maintain salvation, but to demonstrate the grace of God and to glorify Him. And so we each have volition. We have to make decisions each day, probably hundreds of times a day, whether we're going to live in light of our new identity or whether we're going to live according to the dictates of our sin nature. And that's why Paul addressed this in Romans chapter 6 and said, you you know, you put off the old man. That's the first time that term was used uh, used in the Scripture. And so we have these standards, such as in Ephesians 4.2 and 4.3, talking about the fact that we are to live this life characterized by humility, gentleness, long-suffering, putting up with one another in love, working diligently to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that that is important for context. It's one of the controlling points for interpreting what follows in Ephesians four and five, uh, down to verse uh, verse nine of chapter six. These are all talking about our behavior qualities. 417 says that we're, says, gives us a negative command. The positive is walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The negative command is don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk in the emptiness or the vanity or the um, uh, vacuum of their mind. But instead, we're to walk in love. Now, the passage we're looking at is between Ephesians 4.17 and Ephesians 5.2. So Ephesians 4.17 starts with this contrast between the fact that we've put off the old man, we've put on the new man, and then begins to contrast behavior characteristics of the old man with that of our new identity in Christ. So we begin to see in um, Back in verse 15, that we are to speak the truth in love. There are these speaking things. The truth... Is that which is revealed by God the scriptures identify an absolute truth, our culture tells us that you have your truth, your wife has our husband has their truth, your kids have their truth, uh, your teachers or employees have their truth, everybody has their own truth, and everybody has a right to their own truth and that is satan 's lie. it is straight from the pit of hell, and it is following that mentality in the world will lead to chaos and disruption because it is the characteristic of each person being their own ultimate authority and each person being their own little God. That was the temptation of Satan to Eve in the garden. It says, you won't die when you eat of this fruit. Uh, you'll be like God. And so uh, Satan didn't create to. Uh, two competitors for godhood in in, uh, Genesis chapter 3 because now we've got 6 billion people all competing with each other to be God. And it leads to chaos and disruption. We're really seeing that work itself out, not just in... Our culture in the United States and all of the divisiveness that is going on just goes because everybody thinks their opinion's right and they're antagonistic and hateful towards everybody else, but that is characteristic of the... All of Western civilization, and it's characteristic of many nations, almost all the nations around the world. Now, this is the first time we've seen this kind of international chaos at this level of interconnectedness in the history of the world since the Tower of Babel, I believe. Now, we've always had sinners who are self absorbed and filled with arrogance and thinking that they're God, but now there seems to be uh, international connectedness and justification. Uh, for all of this, and so we have these statements like uh, ephesians four fifteen talking about uh, the fact that we 're to speak the truth in love, and that speaking the truth in love is characteristic of the new man and we come to come to verse twenty five which says "Therefore, uh, you have already put off the lie, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. I think that 's a controlling feature of this section. From verse 25 down to maybe verse 1, there's debate over this. I think that you have the command repeated in verse 2 to walk in love as Christ also loved us. That could be, and I think that starts the, actually starts the next paragraph that, that the... Um, the chapter break was placed uh, one verse too early. That chapter 5, verse 1 is a conclusion to what is in the section from 25 to 32. Now, the reason I say all of that is because there's some debates about some of the things that are said, especially when it comes to interpreting the first. The first command in Ephesians 430, which is do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So we have to look at this a little bit. And so one last observation on the context is that we have uh, this section from 425 down to 521 that has 27 imperatives. This is telling us how we're supposed to live and how, what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. There are eight more in 522-69, to 6, 9, and then there's a number of imperatival participles. And so all of these are related to how the new man, those who are in the new man, those who are in Christ, are to think, how we're to talk, how we're to, how we're to live our lives, how we're to talk, and how we're to walk. So last week we looked at Ephesians 4.29, which starts with a negative command, There's no connective here. It doesn't say and. There's no but. There's no conjunction at the beginning. And that's an important thing that I want to point out here is that once we start with verse um, 26 following the uh, command of, of speaking truth, and that should be understood as qualitative, so it's talking about within the framework of the Judeo-Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, and on the basis of what the truth that Scripture communicates, Uh, that's what is to characterize our conversation with one another. First command, it just starts off, verse 26, notice, be angry. So that's, that's a positive command, be angry. And then you have immediately follows a negative, do not sin, and don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And then you have a connected command, with, connected by the conjunction nor, nor get placed to the devil. So verses 26 and 27 obviously go together as one sentence. And then you have the beginning of the next sentence. Notice there's no connective there. It starts off, let him who stole steal no longer. And... Uh, And so verse 28 is, the whole verse is self-contained. The reason he should not steal, but rather labor, is so that he can uh, provide something for those who have need. That's grace. Okay, so we have speaking the truth with her neighbor. That is gracious. It is not gracious to talk in the framework of lies or validate lies. And it's not gracious to be sinful with our anger it's not gracious to steal it is gracious to work so that we have something to give others that's grace in action and when we get done with this and we get down to verse 32 where it says be kind to one another that of course is obviously gracious kindness tender heartedness forgiving one another is gracious and i point this out because the word for forgiving here is one of two words used for forgiveness in Scripture. The other word, which is common, is aphiemi. That's the Greek word. And it emphasizes forgiveness or canceling a debt. So when we forgive one another, we basically cancel out what they did. Okay? We're not going to hold it against them. That doesn't mean in some cases that we're just going to allow ourselves to become a victim of that person again, but we're... We're going to let them pass, and we're not going to get involved with mental attitude sins against them and let that be a problem for us. Uh, So we're going to just love them from afar. But this word is charizomai. Charis is the Greek word for grace. Charizomai means graciously forgive. Like afiemi, and it's used as a synonym at times, both of these words were used uh, as... uh, as words in banking and accounting for the canceling of a debt. Okay, so it has, but it emphasizes the graciousness of the action. The reason I say this is this whole context of 25 down to verse 1 is organized around this theme of grace, I'm saying that because when we get into some of the issues related to just exactly how we're going to interpret grieving the Holy Spirit, we'll notice something. Notice that verse 30 begins with a with a uh, conjunction. It begins with and. So as we uh, go down here and look at this, look at the slide. Verse 30 begins with the word and, which connects it to the previous verse. So there are some who say, well, contextually, grieving the Spirit is, is uh, not using a corrupt language. That's technically true. But that it, it doesn't indicate that grieving the Spirit is limited to not having a corrupt word. OK, that's important. And the context here shows that the broader context, each of these uh, positive commands and negative commands are tied together, first of all, by grace. Second of all, because they are character qualities of the new man, not the old man. So I'm just arguing for a grace, uh, grace connection there uh, that is that is very important. So how are we to understand this command then, uh, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God? One thing I want to point out is there are three things that are significant in this particular verse. The first is the command not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The second is, that we'll probably get to next time, is that this is a distinctive title for the Holy Spirit. It's as if the author really wants us to pay attention. It is not the Spirit of God, it's not the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit of God. So it's a strong emphasis on the deity and also the personality of God the Holy Spirit because of the nature of this command. But what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Now, as I pointed out, there are some that have said that grieving the Holy Spirit must be limited by the previous command to not let a corrupt word or that which is corrupted speaking. That is, it's not based on scripture. It's not based on a biblical worldview. It's not within the framework of, of truth. And uh, that's why we go back to verse 25 to understand that is a controlling idea there. So the corrupt word there is that which is based on a false, non-biblical narrative or philosophy. And we have many that are in this world today from, uh, uh, crony capitalism to Marxism to uh, social justice movements all of these things are all based on anti-Christian non-biblical understandings of the nature and purpose of mankind and the nature of God and so not grieving the Holy Spirit is clearly related to that but I think it's broader than that and why do I say that Well, because this isn't the only place in Scripture that we have such a command to not grieve the Holy Spirit. So first of all, what I want to do is take us into the Old Testament and see how it is used there. And then we want to come back and look at how it's used a little bit in terms of the Gospels and our Lord Jesus Christ, this concept of grieving. And then once we understand that, we have to decide whether or not grieving God or grieving the Holy Spirit is a literal term indicating that this is a divine emotion or whether it is a figure of speech which is... helping us to understand something about God That we can't truly comprehend because God is very different from us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. But we can only understand certain things about God through various analogies or figures of speech called anthropopathisms. So we're going to get to that. So I want you to look at some of these passages. So I want you to turn, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63, and Isaiah chapter 63 is the next to last uh, chapter, or second to last. Uh, so there's 64 and 65, so it's third to last. Uh, Isaiah chapter 63, uh, towards the end there. And there's a rehearsal here about something in the, that really doesn't take place until, until we get to the future. But it talks about the fact that there's going to be this future judgment and God is going to send a Savior to physically, literally rescue the Jewish people who have taken refuge across the Jordan River in a place called Basra, which is very close to Petra. And I'm just saying this to give us a little context. It starts off, who is this who comes from Edom? With dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in mighty, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. This is talking about the Messiah. This is one of the greatest messianic prophecies related to the uh, campaign of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. The question is asked in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The winepress is a is a picture, frequently in Scripture, of judgment at the end times. It is the picture of judgment during the time of the tribulation period. And so the Messiah explains the, and answers that question. His garments are red because he's been wading through the blood of his enemies. He says, I have trodden the wine." press alone wine press stands for the judgment that occurs uh, in the tribulation period for i have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and i have stained all my robes for the day of vengeance that's a term for the tribulation period as god is bringing judgment upon the nations of the earth for rejecting him for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. Notice that there is a physical redemption taking place here for Israel. This is when he will rescue them from the Antichrist and they will experience redemption in the sense that they are redeemed. Uh, at this time from the, uh, per, from the persecution of the, of the Antichrist, much as they were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Now that's important because we're, we're, we're told in our passage in Ephesians, uh, 430, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you just have to hold that thought. I mean, there's there's so much here that is difficult for a lot of people to grasp. You know, they read this, they go, what in the world is this all about? That's why I'm taking some time to go through this phrase by phrase so we make sure we understand this. So the term redemption doesn't speak... Only of the payment for our sin penalty on the cross, that is its primary usage in relation to God's gracious deliverance of us in Scripture. That there, that we are redeemed at the cross. Positionally, I mean, actually, as Christ pays the penalty, he pays the sin penalty for us. The Greek words translated redemption, there's a group of them, always have the idea of paying a price for something. And then there is physical redemption that occurs in the sense of Israel being redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And there's also redemption as as Israel, the survivors of Israel who have taken refuge across the Jordan uh, River into the area of Basra and Petra, uh, are going to be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ when they call upon him at the end of the tribulation and he will return to them and rescue them from from the persecuting armies of the of, of the antichrist. Okay, so uh, he says this it's the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. It's time for that ultimate redemption of the nation. He then says I looked but there was no one to help and I wondered That there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. And my own fury had sustained me. See, all of these words, fury and anger and everything, that these are, these are also anthropopathisms to describe this. We don't understand God as he is. But what we can come to understand is the depth and profundity of our emotions And that is used as an analogy to express the seriousness of the violation of God's righteousness and the necessity of payment and punishment for violating his righteousness. So he says, I have trodden down the peoples, that's the nations outside of Israel in my anger, Made them drunk in my fury and brought them, brought down the strength to the earth. One other thing. Uh, Some years ago, I read an article that a colleague, a friend had written and talking about, well, God does have emotion. And I said, and he spent a lot of time talking about a couple of passages in Exodus. And I said, You missed a couple of things. This guy was a Hebrew scholar as well. I had majored in Hebrew in seminary. And I said, what you have in the Hebrew is the statement it doesn't say uh, that his uh, that he was wrathful it says his nose burned that's the literal meaning of the words in the Hebrew now does God have a nose like we have a nose no he doesn't We use anthropo Morphisms, that's a word for man-like features, the eyes of God go to and throw over over the earth. Okay, the arm of God, uh, that is a picture of God's power. The hand of God, it's a picture of God's power. God doesn't have a literal hand or literal arm or literal eyes like we have, but those phrases are used to communicate to us a point of analogy so that we can understand the purposes, the plans, and the policies of God. The same thing happens with attributing to God human emotions, is that emotion is a responder. If I were to come in here and uh, get a hold of you, call you out privately and say, look, I just got word that, that there's been a major traffic accident and your children were all killed, how would you feel? You feel terrible. Emotions are a responder to certain kinds of data. But if I came back five minutes later and said, oh, I'm so sorry, it wasn't your children, how do you feel now? See, your emotions are responses to information. Does God get new information? Never. Because God is eternally omniscient. He has always known all the knowable, forever and ever. So he's never getting new information. He has always known that the Israelites were going to worship idols while Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the law. So when it actually happened in history, he's not getting new information and responding in anger. The wrath of God upon them is a way of demonstrating through uh, hyperbole and exaggeration the seriousness with which we should take the violation of God's righteousness. And so words like wrath and anger are attributed to God, not because God is up there with vacillating emotions, depending on what we do or don't do, but in order for us to realize when when somebody really does something against me and hurts me, I feel a certain way. I'm angry and wrathful. When I sin... And break the, and violate the righteousness of God, that has a serious consequence. Okay, because I violated the righteousness of God. Now grief is expressed that, expresses that same, same kind of idea. So we get down to, uh, let's get into the next verse, which is verse seven in Isaiah 63 seven. And Isaiah says, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. So he's just gone through six verses telling us about how God is going to bring judgment upon the nations uh, at the end of the tribulation to protect his people. The Israelites who have followed Jesus' command, remember in... The Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, after Jesus has outlined the first half of the tribulation, he then says that, uh, talks about the Antichrist coming and that he will uh, put up an idol in the temple. That idol, that, and that action is referred to as the abomination of desolation taken from Daniel chapter 9. And so Jesus says, when you see this happen then you leave. You go to the mountains immediately. Don't go back and get any groceries. Uh, if you don't have your weapons with you too late... You just leave immediately and you head to the mountains. You head south and they would head south into the mountains, the hill country of Judah, and then across the area of the Jordan and the Arabah into the uh, that, that all that canyon territory over in Jordan, where the city of Petra is, and that 's where Basra uh, Basra is located so That is what's being described here is they've been chased by the Antichrist, they're hiding out, God has been protecting them, and finally they call on the name of the Lord. And at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus says, I'm not going to return until you call upon the name of the Lord. And when those Jews who, and the only reason they would leave and follow Jesus' command, that when you see the sign of the abomination of desolation that you would, you would leave. Only a believer is going to do that. Jews who don't know anything about the New Testament aren't going to go anywhere. They have rejected Jesus. But those who believe Jesus, believe His commands, and they will leave. So now they have gathered, they are protected by God in Basra, and they call upon the name of the Lord, and Jesus returns and slays their enemy, and then he is going to lead them in a victorious military campaign against the armies of the Antichrist, crossing back west over the Jordan and then north to Jerusalem, and then he will come to the Mount of Olives. That's the that, framework. That's the framework. And so here, after discussing the judgment of God upon the nations in verses 1 through 6, he says, I will mention the loving kindnesses. This is the Hebrew word chesed, which means the loyal, faithful love of God. He's loyal to his covenant with Israel. He says, I will mention God's faithful, loyal love to his covenant with Israel and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses what he's basically saying there is what Paul sums up is you know all the bless all the blessings of heaven okay he God is faithful to his covenant and then we get to verse 8 he says uh For he said, Surely they are my people, children, who will not lie. So he became their Savior. This isn't redemptive salvation at the cross. That had already happened. This is talking about the application of his physical deliverance of those in Basra. In all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence, that's a reference to the angel of the Lord, the angel of his presence, that's the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of his presence saved them. He's talking about that physical deliverance of the remnant of Israel at the end of the tribulation. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So now he's transferred it to the past of the role of the angel angel of the presence of the Lord during the time of the wilderness wanderings. He says, but what did they do? They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he's going back to, remember how disobedient and rebellious the Israelites were in in the wilderness for 40 years? That is the context, that's grieving God. It's rebellion against God. So that's, that's part of that Old Testament context. So let me just kind of review a couple of things for you and you can jot down these references in your scripture. Uh, this location of, uh, where the bitter waters were and, and the children of Israel were going through a drought, uh, it was mentioned many times, Meribah is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And so there are two incidences that get this name. The first is when they're first coming out of Egypt and they are, oh, they're griping and complaining and about there's no water and there's no food. And so God uh, tells Moses to strike the rock. And so water gushes forth. God provides water for them. He also, in context, he provides the manna and he provides the, the, the quail. We don't have time to go back and read all, all of that. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel. They're always arguing with God. And because they tempted or they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And what did they just see? They saw God split the Red Sea, and they came across it, two and a half, three million of them came across it on dry land, and within a couple of days, they're complaining about God doesn't take care of us. We don't have any food. We don't have any water. We're just a bunch of self-pitying crybabies. And they're arguing against Moses, and they want to get another leader, and God is Provides for them in His grace. See, this is God's gracious provision. So then, in Numbers twenty twelve, it's another reference to Meribah, but this time it happens later. They've gone to uh, Mount Sinai. They heard the voice of God. They received the law. And they get the instructions on the tabernacle. They spend a year there and build and construct everything for the tabernacle. And they leave and they head north to a place on the southern border of Israel called Kadesh Barnea. And there they send the 12 tribes, I mean, the t- representatives of the 12 tribes in. They send 12 spies in. You know the story. Ten of them came back and said, we can't do it. They've got big cities and fortifications, and they've got um, giants in the land, and we can't do it. And two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, sure we can, because it's not up to us. It's up to God, and we just have to trust him. But because the people followed the ten, the ten spies, who who didn't trust God, uh, they get stuck with 40 years of wandering in the desert. Now, we took a group to Israel several years ago. Remember, we flew and we, we went down there to Mizpah Ramon, and then we crossed through that wilderness, and it's just as barren and bleak as it could possibly be. But God, in His grace, provided water, and He provided uh, food for them during that whole time. And then they had a second incident that occurred, where again God is going to give Moses instructions and this time he said speak to the rock but he didn't He hit. He did what he did the first time. Moses got angry, and he hit the rock. And because of that, God said, you're not going to get to go into the land. That's the second Meribah. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Okay, that word meribah, the R-I-B in the middle, is from the Hebrew word Reev, which means to contend. So this is shifted from a verb to a noun, and that's the name of it. It means the place of contention uh, with God. In verse 14, "...for the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congreg- congregation, you rebelled against my command to hollow me at the waters before their eyes." These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So this is what, what, see again. It is this bitterness, this rebellion, this disobedience against God. It's what Isaiah is referring to in Isaiah 63.10 as grieving the Holy Spirit. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, 49 through 52, uh, again, there's a reference to this incident. And, uh, here Moses is going to go up onto, um, uh, Mount Nebo, and die on the mountain, you're going to go up there just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor. Why? Verse 51, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh. So this is this is a historic problem. Again, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy 33, 8, and it goes on and on. But we come to uh, uh, Psalm 78. I want to read more of this than I have time for, but you've got to get the context. This is really important. And it's a very long psalm, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I wanted to just point out a couple of things along here. And so first of all, earlier in the psalm, it talks about the great things uh, that God did. Marvelous things He did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He parted the Red Sea, divided the sea, and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. And so He he describes all these things in verse 15, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance with the like the depths. Uh, and he also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down the rivers. And verse 17 goes on, but they sinned even more against him. God gave them water and food every day, and they just kept rebelling against him. That's Meribah, both the first Meribah and second Meribah. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God really feed us? Can he prepare a table for us in the wilderness? And behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out. And then we skip to verse 35, and at one point they do remember God. Then they remembered that God was their rock. After all this disobedience, they finally wake up a little bit. And they remember God is their rock, and the Most High God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they go right back into disobedience. They, um, they lied to him with their tongue. Their heart was not steadfast with him nor were they faithful in his covenant. God doesn't get into details. It's summarized. They're lying to God. They're not faithful in their covenant. They're not hanging in there and being steadfast with God. But God is still gracious. He's full of compassion. He forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Verse 39 says, For he remembered that they were but flesh. We need to remember this. When we get to the passage coming up, it talks about we need to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. God forgives us because He remembers that we're just flesh. Sometimes some of the people that you hold a grudge against, you need to remember that they're just as lousy, rotten, a sinner as you are. And cut them a little slack. That's called grace orientation. How often they provoked Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. Yes again and again they tempted God and limited the holy one of God. So we have them grieving God in the desert and the phrase is used again but it's tied to the holy spirit in Isaiah 63:10 that they rebelled and grieved his holy spirit. Now God's emotion doesn't have emotions and he's not vacillating on this, but how is it that you feel When you lose someone or somebody really disappoints you and you're sorrowful and you grieve in your soul, that's the seriousness of what happens when we violate the righteousness of God. So this is what Paul is saying here. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's used as a figure of speech. It's used as an anthropopathism. It's not literal. The Holy Spirit isn't up there weeping and wailing because of your sin, But he is, what what is the Holy Spirit trying to do? He's trying to get you to walk with him day by day, moment by moment. And so you and I sometimes and other times more frequently grieve the Spirit because he's trying to get us to walk with him and we're frustrating him in that process, so to speak speaking figuratively, when we walk according to the lusts of the flesh, when we walk according to our sin nature, when we refuse to learn and apply the Word of God. And so this is what what, what is going on. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ experienced human grief, which is not a sin to grieve, It's what you do with it. See, in Matthew 26-37, when he's at Garden of Gethsemane and he goes away from the other disciples for a while, he takes Peter with him. And the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And he began to be sorrowful. That's the same word we have in in Matthew. But see, this is Jesus in his humanity as the God-man. He's sorrowful and deeply distressed about what's going to happen that night, Not, not Not merely the physical torture he's going to go through, but the fact that he is going to, as Peter states it in 1 Peter 2.15, he is going to bear in his own body on the cross our sin, And, and on the cross he is Fully in his hypostatic union. He is undiminished deity and true humanity. He has to be true humanity on the cross. It emphasizes his body because in his humanity he dies as our substitute. If he is one one bit less than true humanity, there's no salvation for anybody. He has to be equivalent to us in his humanity to save us. And if he's not deity, then it doesn't count for the infinite payment of the sin penalty for all mankind. So uh he anticipates that, that the next day he who knew no sin will be made sin for us. And so he is distressed in his humanity, but he doesn't get angry and he doesn't get self-centered and self-pity and everything. What does he do? He prays to God to strengthen him through his trial. So... That applies to us. We grieve. There's nothing wrong with grieving. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that is, believers who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. He's not saying lest you sorrow. You will sorrow. I will sorrow. But when we have believers in our family, loved ones, friends, and they die, we don't grieve like those who have no hope but I'm going to tell you something. I've thought about this. I have some close friends who are not believers. And when they die, I will sorrow, as those who have no hope. And that's a sad reality. So what we're seeing here is basically this, in terms of summary. Grieving God is connected to the rebellion at Meribah. Grieving the Holy Spirit is connected to the rebellion at Meribah in Isaiah chapter 63. So grieving is more than just saying things, uh, speaking of, out of the corruption of the human viewpoint worldview. It, it, it's broader than that in Scripture. And third, in the broader context of Ephesians 4, though grieving the Holy Spirit is related to speaking corrupt words, these are to be understood in the context of verse 25, which is speaking truth the whole broad spectrum. It's a violation of living as a new man in Christ so that all sin is a rebellion of the standards of God, and all sin would grieve the Holy Spirit. This is the last point. Grieving the Holy Spirit is not part of the Christian's walk, and therefore it breaks the believer's walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And the only solution then is to confess sin. And when we confess sin, when we admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, then instantly we're forgiven of those sins and then cleansed from all unrighteousness. And that has to happen to us many times every single day. And when we sin, when we're out of fellowship, that is grieving the Spirit because we're violating the standards of the conduct of the new man with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to work through the details of what these phrases mean, like grieving the Holy Spirit of God that, that he's not going off on some kind of an emotional reaction, but that he is, it's the violation of your righteousness and your plan in terms of the way we are to be walking. And so there is this, this, this significant and serious problem of violating the righteousness of God in our lives. So Father, we are reminded that too often we are like the Israelites in the wilderness. And we live, uh, self-centered, sin-centered lives again and again and again, uh, not depending upon you, not trusting you, not taking a refuge in you and in your word. And we pray that you would challenge us with that. And Father, on the other hand, uh, we also want to pray for anyone who's here, anyone who is uh, listening online or listening at some later date, that God's plan of salvation is based on grace. He freely gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty as a substitute for our sin penalty. So that if we trusted in him, we would have, as a free gift, everlasting life. And that that salvation can never be lost, can never be taken from us. We did nothing to earn it or deserve it, and we can do nothing to lose it. But, Father, in your grace you have given us that, and in this new life we are to live in a way that is consistent with that. Many believers will not do that. But we have been taught well, and we pray that on our better days we desire to honor and glorify you and to walk consistently by the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would make the gospel, the good news of salvation, clear to those who do not have eternal life, and that you will challenge those who do have eternal life to live in a manner consistent with their new identity in Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.